Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Grace. If you guys will stand, we get to sing with to our God. And uh, this is a new song we just wanted to teach you guys. Um, but it's just an awesome song proclaiming how great our God is. So uh, just listen along as we sing it and you'll get the hang of it. Let's, let's sing it out together.
bow your heads for a moment. I'm going to read from Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Father God, we come before you proclaiming how great you are, singing songs of of your glories that we see in creation. The stars and the heavens and the rocks cry out how great you are, God. But we're a people that have sinned. We're a people that do things we shouldn't do, and we're a people that leave good and honorable things undone. We don't love others the way that we should, in a way that reflects your beauty to the world. So Lord, we confess those things this morning. We admit those before you and we take hope in the words of Psalm 30 that with you there is forgiveness. That if you remembered and marked our sins, none of us could stand. And so we cry out to you and receive the forgiveness and the freedom that we have that you paid for through the life and death of your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. This is actually uh, one of my favorite songs to sing with y'all. A couple of reasons, I guess. One of them is the just the rich old language that 
is used here um, that we don't often get to kind of dig into, um, but also just that this is such an amazing song of confession and uh, I think rightly viewing God in our state before him uh, and starting in a place of brokenness and being led to a place of hope through him. So if you guys will sing these words with us. And if you just need a second to stop and think about what the words really mean, feel free to just take that time and uh, and we'll keep singing it out. So let's sing together. From the depths of woe I raise to thee A voice of lamentation Return a gracious you to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark, oh, who shall stand before thee?
Awesome thing to join with your children in singing that, proclaiming that you are great. God, help us to seek to know you more, God, and to dig into your word daily, Lord, that we may sing from hearts that are thankful and, and understand more of who you are. God, help us to love you and show it through our actions. Lord, help us to listen and to learn, God. I pray that you will show yourself to us through your word now. To your name I pray. Amen. Okay, I'm going to stand you back up. I'm sorry. I, I just want, want to do something real quick. We're talking today about making life beautiful. How God wants to use us to make every area of our life beautiful. So stand back up. And uh, what I want you to do is I want you to turn and, and meet someone and, and share with them something you've done recently in your home, your barracks, your apartment, wherever, to make it a little more beautiful. Maybe you just made your bed. Maybe you remodeled a room. I, you know, I don't know what it might be, but share something you've done to make your place that you live more beautiful. Go ahead and share that with each other for a few minutes. Find a couple of people. All right, you did very well. I'm proud of you all. You can sit now. Thank you. Thanks for, in, thanks for indulging me in that. Uh, if you have a Bible, we can open them up to Titus chapter 2. Titus is about three-fourths through the New Testament. If you're new with us, uh, we're calling the series in Titus Counterculture. And Titus is one of the three pastoral letters that Paul wrote. So he's, he's telling uh, Titus and Timothy in First and Second Timothy, these three books together, how to set up and lead and run a church. 
And so Titus is the shortest and kind of most to the point. There's this theme of setting up a culture of truth in opposition to a culture of lies, a culture where the truth is honored and we live beautiful lives in contrast to kind of the ugly decay of a culture based on lies. And uh, so again and again, we get this theme. And so today we, we understand uh, really at a deeper level than we have in the earlier chapters that when we're setting up this alternative culture, it's not a combative culture. It's not fighting against the rest of the culture, but we're setting up something beautiful. We're setting up something that's attractive, a culture within a culture, something that draws people in. And that's really what church life, that's really what our homes should be like. Uh, we should be making life beautiful. So that's a theme today. In chapter 2, we're, we're going to look at the first 10 verses. As our culture continues to decay, uh, the, the fad of the moment, if you will, of the last 10 or 20 years is what's called postmodernism. And part of postmodernism is a rebellion against the rationalistic ideas of modernism. And basically what that means really is the scientific method. Uh, so what we're seeing in postmodernism is kind of a rebellion against uh, the simplicity of we can just figure it out, right? People are starting to give up on that a little bit and go, well, maybe we can't just figure it out. And people are kind of giving up on science at some levels while others in the culture continue to be committed to science. In other levels, there's, there's a new openness to, to, uh, to not trusting in truth and logic and evidence all the time. And so as the culture shifts in that way, I believe uh, the, the attractiveness of, of being beautiful, uh, the idea of glory, the idea of God being a, a God not just of truth and right and wrong and logic and order, which those things are all true, but also a God of beauty and mystery, that's going to become more and more imp- important to the church, that we would hold that intention, that we wouldn't just talk about truth and separate it out like it's some different thing altogether from beauty but that we would hold the biblical view that those things go together, that beauty and delight and glory, that goes with the God of order and truth and, and justice and those things. Those things go together, and that's, the Bible always holds those together. We in culture, we try to say, well, I'm about this or I'm about that, and we kind of base our lives on one thing or another thing. The Bible holds those things in tension, and so we need to remember that as a church. As we see these words, that's going to be Paul's instructions to Titus, that we should live our lives in a certain way, so that people would be attracted to God, that people would see how beautiful God really is and how beautiful the gospel is. So starting off in verse 1, reading chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. He says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. It's a word we've seen again and again, sound meaning healthy, healthy doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. And so train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn or make beautiful or make attractive the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would teach us how to be a, a people that make life beautiful that our lives would be attractive because of you, because of you and your spirit at work in us. And so we pray that even as we look at your word together this morning, that you would shape us, that your spirit would come and meet us here and and you'd help us to have understanding of of what you have to say here in Titus chapter 2. Pray that you would transform us. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, as the culture continues to decay... As the culture gets uh, drifts farther and farther away from the truth and continues to base itself and what it holds dear on the lies that, that the serpent first told in the garden, that we don't need God and we can do life apart from God and be just fine and be our own gods, well, that lie continues to decay and corrupt our culture and, and all cultures all over the world. But you see it really strongly evidenced in the world of modern art. Any of you very familiar with some of the modern art that's being cranked out lately? Um, I want to share an example with you of something basically that's disgusting. So I'm going to disgust you, and and I don't think a preacher should uh, make a point of always trying to gross people out or disgust people, but I think think this is an important evidence, an important thing 
to think about when we think about making our lives beautiful as a church. There's a modern artist, and I, and I read about this in the book Notes from the Tilted World. It's, it's a book actually talking about the idea that, that the faith should be beautiful, not just logical, which it is, but also beautiful, a book by N.D. Wilson, which I highly recommend. But, but he, he talked about this artist who produced a machine and put it on display in museums of modern art. And basically what he did was he designed a machine that would produce poop. Okay? Yes, it is disgusting. I'm sorry. I see the grossed out faces. You should be disgusted. Okay? This is the appropriate time to be disgusted. And, and this is art. That, that's beauty now in our world. That, that he would produce a machine that the whole purpose, the chemistry behind it, it, it manufactures poop. It comes out on like a little assembly line thing at the end. And people go to museums to see this and wonder at it and be amazed by it. Guys, that's the direction that our culture is going. That's the direction that a culture goes in when a culture uh, is disjoined from the truth. But Paul is instructing Titus, and he's saying the church should be founded and based on truth, and then that should produce beauty. I mean, human beings can produce poop, but at least we can produce beautiful things too, right? I mean... At least there's some beauty and some good things that come out of it. But our culture is saying, hey, this is art. All of the negative, all of the bad, and none of the positive. It's like he's produced a machine that only makes the bad. That's all it makes. And he's calling that beauty. He's calling that art. Well, we as the church should not be that kind of machine, right? I mean, we as the church should be producing beauty. We as a church should be something that is attractive, not repulsive, but attractive. And again and again, that's, that's a lesson here. In Titus, And the first thing that we see at the beginning of chapter 2 is where it all starts. That truth is the spark of beauty. Truth is the spark of beauty. That's, it's the trigger, right? It's, it's the motivation. Thinking in artistic terms, if, if you're an artist or a writer or a painter or a musician, you know, thinking of, of the idea of inspiration, you know? Something inspires you. Something moves you to produce something beautiful. Well, truth is that trigger. Truth is that spark. And he says that in verse 1. He says, Titus, but as for you, in contrast with these false teachers, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine, healthy teaching. Healthy teaching is going to produce beauty. It's going to produce something good, something beautiful. Those things are never pulled apart in the Bible. Those things always go together. You you don't have to either say, well, are we going to be about truth or are we going to be about beauty? Which is it going to be? Well, no, the Bible says those things go together. Those things should be held together at all times. And so the trigger is teaching the truth, teaching what is healthy, sticking to the gospel, the true story, in contrast with the lie. You know, we talked about the backing up to 50,000 feet. The story of the Bible is mankind rebelled in Genesis chapter 3 and decided to believe a lie, that they could do life on their own. And God came back after us. He pursued us and he he made provision for us to be saved and be brought back to himself because we can't do life on our own. And God knows that. And God loves us. So he pursues us and he woos us back to himself because he knows that our greatest joy, our greatest delight, the greatest beauty in life is found in relationship with him. And so that should be at the center point of what is being taught at a church. It should be founded on truth. That's something we're committed to, that we will continue to teach truth because we see that as the spark of beauty and the spark of what God wants in our life. If you're just thinking about uh, starting a fire, starting a barbecue, you've got to start with that first match, right? You've got to start with the, the lighter. You've got to start with the spark. If you think about a car, a car has the, the ignition, right? Sometimes mine sticks, and so I can't start the car and it drives me crazy. I keep trying to turn it and it, just, it won't turn. I have to take it out and I have to jiggle it, put it back in. But you've got to have that, that trigger, that ignition to get it started. And, and Paul says it's truth. Biblically, truth is that ignition. Truth is the ignition that gets us started, that motivates us, that pushes us forward to have something to offer in this world. A, a lot of times we talk about um, good works and, and being holy and those things being the motivating factor that makes us approved by God. Uh, we, we, we think about ordering our lives and, and, well, if I can just clean up my life, then God will approve of me. Or if I can just be uh, engaged enough, emotionally into it enough, you know, kind of a revivalistic, if I just have the right attitude, then, then God will be pleased with me. When, when the gospel says, no, the, the order is God shows that he's pleased with us in the gospel. 
He gave us Jesus. Jesus died for us. While we were yet sinners, Romans says, Christ died for us. That is the motivation that then results in a right attitude. That's the motivation, that's the spark that then results in good works. So we've always got to maintain that order. We've always got to say the truth sparks us to do what's right. The truth sparks us to feel what's right. Our feelings don't drive reality, but the truth about God should drive our feelings. And that's what we're taught here at the beginning. The the next section we see, this is going to be kind of counterintuitive, that our calling then is the fuel of beauty. Our calling, our place in life, the station that God gives us, that then becomes what gets burned up in this engine of life. That's what God's going to use. It's the raw material. It's the stuff that God's making the art of our life out of. It's going to be what what God uses, the calling that he gives you. And that's kind of counterintuitive to us because a lot of times we're taught to despise our station in life or our calling in life. And some of that is, is a result of a great blessing we have here. In our country, we have the great blessing of of, uh, of liberty and riches and resources so we can kind of pick and choose who we're going to be, right? We have a lot more choices than we would have had 100 years ago and more choices still than we would have had 200 years ago. So we have a lot of opportunities to, to remake ourselves and to try new things and to be new things. But, but the, the Bible continues to speak to people in the calling that they already have, assuming that you know it, I think we're kind of confused because of all the the opportunities we have. But assuming you know your calling, you know your station in life, and saying, use it for God's glory. Make life beautiful out of that. Use that as the fuel for this fire that you're going to burn. You're going to show yourself to God. So so the two two ideas I was thinking about, one is fuel. You know, it's it's what burns up to make the car go. It's it's the engine of your life. You're you're burning that up. You're, You're moving somewhere with that fuel of the calling God's given you. He's given you all different resources. He's given you all different places to live, times to live, gifts. He's built you a certain way. He's given you a mind that may be good at some things and not as good at other things. He's placed you in certain relationships. He's given you people to care for. So so that's the fuel that you're going to burn up. That's going to be your art project for God. You're going to make life beautiful out of that. Another way to think about it from the more artistic perspective is clay. That the calling and the station and the role you have in life is the clay that God is shaping. When you think about Ephesians 2 that says our life is, is God's workmanship. It's God's piece of art that God is shaping. That, that's the calling you have, the gifts you have, the resources you've been given. That's the raw material that God is going to shape to make something beautiful out of your life. And so Paul instructs Titus and says, instruct people in whatever station they have, whatever place in life they have, whatever calling they've been called to, to use that for God. So we're going to go through these here. There's several of them in verses 2 through 9. And we're going to go through these and we're going to, we're going to see where, where we're to use these, how we're to use these things for God. And just remembering this, this overarching biblical concept, like it says in Acts 17, that God determined and allotted periods for people to live in and boundaries of dwelling places. God, God designed that. God is actually sovereign. He's actually in control of the universe. That's why we call him God. And, and he made you a man or a woman. He made you a husband or a wife. He made you a child. He made you a brother or sister. He made you good at this and bad at that. He, he gave you the body that you have. God gave it to you, and you can either be ticked off at him for it, or you can say, thank you, God, for the resources I've been given. I'm going to use them for your glory. This is who I am. This is who I've been called to be, and I'm going to, I'm going to give this to you. I'm going to glorify you with this, with this life. Starts off in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Now, this word older men, there's a distinction between uh, the word elder in earlier chapters. We talked about elders are kind of the official leaders like pastors and overseers in the church and older. So there is a distinction kind of like we have in English. We have the word elder that can mean older or it can mean a title. And then we have the word older, which generally just means older. And it's kind of the same thing here. So this, he's talking about older men. And so these aren't the officials of the church, uh, but they are the ones that he calls on first. And he says, you're, you're kind of the leader in these different stations of life, and I'm going to speak to you first, that you need to be sober-minded, that you need to be dignified, self-controlled, and sound, healthy in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older men need to be sober. They need to be sober. Here it says sober-minded in the ESV. I don't remember how it says it in the NIV, but, but it, it really speaks to being sober, not, not being a drunk. And, and if you look at it over all the cultures of the world, what you'll find is one of the biggest key problems in cultures all over the world is men who have checked out. Men who, who sit on the corner 
drunk while the women are doing all the work. While the women are trying to make ends meet, they're trying to bring home the bacon, they're trying to raise the children, they're working in the field. You see this as being one of the biggest problems all over the world. Women staying engaged because, you know, for whatever reason, the connection they have to the children of the home, they, they continue to work at it. And I know not all women do that. Women check out too. We'll get to that in the next verse. But, but this, this starts often with the men, men who have checked out and are just letting, letting everybody else take care of it. I mean, life is hard, but we've got a lot of good reasons to want to check out. A lot of us are sick. A lot of us have broken relationships. A lot of us have been hurt in life, and sometimes it seems like it'd just be easier to quit, doesn't it? And uh, we don't want to take our lives, so we just think, well, I'll just live half alive. I'll just medicate, and I'll stay drunk all the time. And that's, that's how a lot of people go. And the first challenge is older men stay in the fight. Stay in the fight. Don't give up. Keep working at redeeming this broken world and making it a better place and remaining sober, remaining aware. Don't, don't sideline yourself and take yourself out of the game, but stay in the game, stay in the fight, continue to remain involved, be self-controlled, be dignified, have a certain uh, gravitas. You ever heard that? They talk about it with political candidates sometime. You know, have, a, have some dignity about you. Lead people well. Know that people are watching you. Even if, even if you're not an officer in the church or an official leader in the church, like it talked about with that other word earlier, still the older men are, are looked to as examples. And he's saying, starting there, they should be dignified. They should remain involved. They should remain in the game. And they should be sound, healthy, in faith, and in love, and, and in perseverance, and steadfastness, and, and that, that patience fighting and staying in there. That's the call to the older men in the church. That's how we're going to build a, a counterculture that's beautiful, that people will be attracted to. The men don't just give up and check out, but they stay involved. And it says, likewise for the older women. So he says, older women, verse 3, likewise, likewise, you're to be reverent in behavior, not slanders or slaves to much wine. So he's saying in the same way, you should be reverent. And this word reverent is a word that literally means kind of like a priestess. You should see yourself as having this holy... A role is like a priestess in a temple that's interceding for other people. So if you're an older woman, you have a calling on your life from God as a part of the Christian congregation that you should set a standard. You should set a standard of dignity. And then he refers back again to the same idea. Don't be a slave to wine. Again, just like he's advised the older, the older men. Don't check out. Don't become addicted to wine. And, we, and we've talked about this before. There's confusion in Christian circles. The, the scriptures are clear that it's not a sin to drink or to touch alcohol, but it is a, it's a dangerous thing that you have to be careful of. It's easy to become addicted. It's easy to use it as a way to check out and not to think anymore and not to feel anymore. And that's what's constantly counseled against. Don't become a drunk. Don't check out. Don't use it as an excuse to not remain involved in life. It says reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Why does Paul uh, address slanderers? I'm going to make a guess. Um, I, I think, again, as kind of going to this idea of calling, that, that we are to consider the gifts that we have. Now, I understand that this is somewhat of a stereotype, but statistics do prove out that women generally are more gifted with the use of their language than men are. I mean, tests again and again show that. I, I understand that there's always people that break the curve, right? There, there's going to be some men that are very linguistically gifted, and there's going to be some women that... that couldn't speak to save their life. But, but generally, you know, research has shown women use twice as many words per day um, just because they enjoy it. And men use, you know, like women, it's like 25,000 and men, it's 10,000. You know, they've done uh, studies to, to understand this sort of thing. And so Paul is not speaking to women and stereotyping them in, in some kind of uh, blind way that doesn't understand the nuance of that. He understands that everybody's different. But he's saying, take your strengths. Women are generally gifted with their mouth, with language. And, and use it to bless people. Don't use it to slander people. Just like men generally, not all the time, there are a lot of wimpy men around, but generally men are stronger physically than women, have bigger muscles. Men are to use their muscles to be a blessing, not to abuse, but to be a blessing, to be a protection to others. Well, in the same way here it says, older women, teach them not to be slanderers, not to use their gifts for tearing other people down, but to be a blessing, to be an encouragement to other people. They are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. They're to bless. They're not to dishonor people with their mouth, but to use their mouth 
to teach what is good, to teach what is right. It says in verse 4, And so in doing this, they will train the young women to love their husbands and children. So now he's talking about the young women. They're to to be trained now by the older women to love their husbands and children. Some of you have heard me talk about this concept of how the Bible tells husbands uh, to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands. Have you heard me talk about that before? And what's interesting is the Bible nowhere tells wives to love their husbands like it says for husbands to love their wives. Now here you see the word love, but you've probably heard before, if you've been in churches before, there are, there are multiple Greek words for love. And generally, whenever it talks to a husband, it's telling a husband to agape, which is the, the uh, unconditional love, the covenantal love of the Bible, the strongest word for love. It's telling husbands to sacrificially, covenantally, unconditionally love their wives. And then here, it's telling wives to like their husbands, is basically what it's saying. Okay, this is this phileo, this is the brotherly love, okay? And I think, I mean, if, if you're honest, you can say, you know what, he cuts his toenails on the bed and he smells funny and it just, sometimes it can get difficult to keep liking the guy, okay? And, and here he's saying if, if the, elder, the older women have their lives in order and they're training the younger women, then they can train the younger women to keep liking their husbands, okay? And so that's kind of the place he starts. And he also says, and to keep liking their children. Um, those of you that have children, you could say that that can be difficult sometimes too, right? We need help. We need community to help us live the beautiful life, to, to, to live fully what God intends us to live. We know it's not easy. Guys especially know it's not easy for you ladies to like us. But, but you're encouraged still to like your men for the glory of God and to like your children. And in verse 5 it says to be self-controlled. Again, continuing this theme, being self-controlled, not being a drunkard, not being out of control, but self-controlled and pure. And then it has this peculiar phrase here, working at home. And this offends a lot of people because in our culture um, there's, there's been a big influence of feminism that says that, that men and women should be completely equal and that you know, there shouldn't be, women shouldn't feel uh, commanded to work at home. And what I want to do is I want to kind of set the boundaries before we talk about what, uh, what this phrase actually means, working at home. I want to explain the biblical boundaries. One biblical boundary is that men are never given an excuse to check out of home, Okay. Men are never given an excuse to check out of home. All the commands given to raising your children, the vast majority of those speak to fathers, specifically. And then several, a lot of them speak to um, parents, plural, and then some of them speak to mothers. But the majority of them speak to fathers, the masculine role, and say, fathers, you, you are entrusted with disciplining and training children. So men, you are never, never allowed to just check out of home. So, so when the Bible talks about women being centered in the home and being domestic, it's never to the kind of 50s extreme where it says, men, don't mess with that. That's women's work. It's never in that light. The other boundary is in Proverbs 31, kind of the ideal woman that's listed in Proverbs 31, is a working woman. Now, she pours that work and that energy and those, the, the wealth that she earns in her job, she pours it back into the home. And, and so those are kind of the biblical boundaries here that, that men are to remain engaged and involved and partner with their, li- their wives in, in domestic life and in loving children and loving home. And that women are allowed to work outside the home. It's, it's in Proverbs 31, the ideal woman. But, but the Bible doesn't shy away from this idea that, that women are the main ones focusing on the home. That, that there is that focus. That, that more centrally they're focused and they're going to pour their energy back into the home uh, in a way that, that it lays a greater burden on them than it does the husbands. But like I said, the husbands are never allowed to check out. The husbands are to remain involved as well. And so this idea is working at home, literally in the Greek, it's, it's putting energy into the home. It's spending your energy on building a home, building a house. And so you may be someone who has another job or two jobs, or you may be staying at home and focusing primarily on that. No, no matter what you're doing, no matter how you're balancing your time and delegating some things out and doing them some things yourself, you're to still be about nurturing and creating a wonderful home. You're to make that home beautiful. You're to make that home attractive. And that's the focus here that he's talking about to younger women. To be working at home, pouring energy in home, to be kind, and to be submissive to their own husbands. And again, this is, this is that balance again, to, to actually arrange yourself. Uh, the, the word tupotasso literally means to arrange under... Uh, it's a word that's really used most heavily in the first century in military terminology. So it's basically arranging yourself under a commander or arranging yourself under someone else who's leading a mission. The Bible doesn't say that women are inferior. The Bible says that women are equal to men. 
The Bible says that we are all co-heirs in Christ. The Bible, more than any other uh, piece of literature and Christianity, more than any other faith, has liberated women throughout history and across different cultures. But the Bible still isn't afraid to say there are still unique roles. It, it is still in the home, the woman is to arrange herself in a way that honors and respects and submits to her husband. And so that, I think that's the biblical balance that, that teaches, yes, we honor women and they are equal to us. And I, I like to joke a lot of times, we know women are smarter than us, but for some reason God has entrusted men to lead the home as, as sacrificial servant leaders. He says all of this, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, in verse 6, it says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Again, if you look at culture and you look at our cultural problems, you can understand why he only gave them one order. Does that make sense to you? He just gave the younger men one order. If you could just pull this off. Young men, if you could just pull this one thing off, this would make a huge cultural difference. This would make life beautiful. If the young men would just be self-controlled. If they could just practice self-control, it would make a huge difference in our culture. If, if young men would, would stay in the game, they would work hard, get a job, provide, uh, be true to their calling, it would, it would change the world. Instead of checking out and just playing video games, sleeping in, doing whatever they want to do, committing crimes, breaking commandments, here he's saying be self-controlled, be engaged. Young men, grow up. That's the call. That's the call to young men, to grow up and to get engaged, to work hard, to be self-controlled. In verse 7, he starts talking to Titus specifically and saying, you're going you're gonna, to, Titus, you're going to set the pace for everybody. He says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech. Again, that's that word sound. that means healthy, healthy speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And we've worked through all these different callings, and he's coming now to the last one. Because some of you may uh, enjoy your calling to some extent. But, but he's saying even, even the hardest calling, even the most difficult station in life, you can still make life beautiful, even in that. He, he ends with slaves. He says, slaves, even you can make life beautiful. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters and everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. Saying even slaves. How many of you have ever had a bad job? You ever had a bad job? He's saying even in your worst job, you can honor God. Even the worst calling, you could use that for God's glory. I mean, these other things, he's assuming people aren't too worried about those callings, those stations in life. But he's saying, even if you're a slave, even if you don't own yourself, even if you belong to someone else and you have a terrible job, you can still give, give that work, give that effort as the stuff of beauty, as make it that into art that God can shape for his glory, that can make you attractive, that can make Jesus attractive to a watching world. Now, it's important to note, we've, we've talked about this a little bit before, that slavery was different in the Roman world in the first century than it, than it was from what we know in America. We have a lot of racial tension in America because slavery was especially insidious, because it was racially based in America. And it became an excuse for racism and vice versa. Racism became an excuse for slavery. And so there's an, an intermixing of some other sins that made it even worse in our country's history. And Christianity is, is no friend of slavery. I mean, it was Christians that, that started the abolitionist movement in America and Christians that, that moved the abolitionist movement in Britain. And so Christianity, uh, because we understand that people are made in the image of God, we don't like slavery. But in the first century, it was, a different, it was a different kind of deal. I mean, it was probably closer uh, to being a professional athlete that has a contract where a team owns you for a year or two. Or being in the military where the government owns you for a few years and can tell you to do whatever they want to tell you to do. It was, it was more like that. It wasn't, it wasn't racist and it, and it wasn't absolute. There were still ways to find your freedom, usually in most cases. So it wasn't quite the extreme that we think of when we hear the, the term slavery. But it was still not the job you wanted, right? It was still the worst job you could have. It's still the worst calling you could have. And Paul is saying, even as a slave, you can fulfill your calling for God's glory. I mean, I've had some pretty bad jobs. I've, I've had some jobs that I didn't want to be in. And, and it's okay when you're in that job to be praying and looking for a way out. But even when you're there, make the most of that time. 
Read the stories about Joseph in the end of Genesis. Those are great stories. Joseph didn't want to be in prison, but he became entrusted by the warden when he was in prison as being a trustworthy steward. And he was given more and more freedom even within the prison because he used that calling for the glory of God. And then he got out. He didn't go, no, no, this is my calling. I'm going to stay in prison. I, I want to stay here and fulfill my calling. No, he got out of there when he got the chance. And so you may be in a terrible job, and I'm not telling you to, to want to stay there, but I am telling you to use the time, redeem the time, to make life beautiful where you are, no matter what calling you have. I think the application is that, that we don't look at the resources we've been given, look at the gifts we have, look at how God's made us, look at where God's placed us, and, and shake our fists at God and say, God, how dare you? But instead say, God, help, help me understand how to use this for you. I understand that you're a generous God, that you're a God of grace. I wouldn't have made all these choices, but I want to use them. I want to redeem this life for you. And I believe that's helped me to live. The last thing that we see is, is mission, the destination of a beautiful life, where we're trying to go. And this is kind of the idea of the whole sermon, that we're trying to get to this place of beauty, trying to get to this place of glorifying God, making God uh, out to be seen for who he really is, letting people see how beautiful God is. Titus 2.10, the end of the slave verse there says, so that... In everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And then IV, it says, make attractive. It's this idea that we would make God beautiful. That the teaching that we talk about Jesus, that that would be seen for the beautiful uh, reality that it is. That it would be seen in all of its glory. That we wouldn't make it uglier than it needs to be, but we would let people see it for how beautiful it really is. So that everything that we're doing, we're trying to get to this place of glory, this place of beauty, for, for giving people a glimpse of Jesus and what he's like. I had a picture of a road just to kind of continue that, that analogy of, of the car. You know, you need the ignition to, to start it. You need the fuel to keep it going. And then there's a destination you're trying to get to. This has a point. It's not just to run the engine, but there's a point you're trying to get somewhere. And, and the place we're trying to get is that God would be honored, that God would be praised, that people would see him and that he would be seen for how beautiful he really is. Uh, the other thing I found was a picture of, of honey because I was thinking about that phrase, you know, you can catch more flies with honey, right? A, a lot of times we, we try to, uh, we ch- I don't think people at our church do this, but I've known people that do this, okay? So maybe you're not here, but you may know people that do this, right? Um, that think to be holy is to be repulsive. Do you know people like that? that you know, they, they think if I'm going to really be holy, I've got to tick people off and make people mad and be a separatist and, and make a hard stand and hold on to things in an angry sort of way. Now, now we want to still hold on to truth, but we don't want to do it in a repulsive way. We, we want to make the truth attractive. And I think as we, we think about this, there, there tend to be two extremes, uh, two kinds of Christian churches out there. Hopefully we're this third way. But, but there's these two ways that you see real, real often. There's what we usually refer to as liberal Christianity, which is a Christianity that's, that's held on to some forms. They've held on to a little bit of the language, but they try to continue to water down their beliefs and to make themselves attractive to the point that they don't, they don't really have the historical Jesus anymore. They've kind of thrown out Jesus and the cross. They don't really believe in sin. They don't really believe in salvation anymore. And they've watered it down to the, the point where, where you just start to question, is, is that even a church anymore? I mean, is that really Christianity anymore, or is that, is that just a club? And so we need to be careful not to take being attractive to that extreme, right? If you make all your energy and all your effort into being attractive, sometimes you can lose the truth. But, but the other side is a problem as well. When you, you focus on truth to the exclusion of the beauty of the gospel, and you're no longer even trying to be attractive, you don't see God as a God who, who wooed us and came to save us and rescue us, but you see God as just an angry God and that you're impressing him by all your rule-keeping, well, then you're going to be angry at your neighbors and you're going to try to impress them with your rule-keeping and you're going, to, you're going to be judgmental towards them. A lot of times we call that fundamentalist Christianity. I think we need to be careful about that term because uh, historically we would, we would fit in the vein of fundamentalism in the sense that we believe the fundamentals. We believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So we need to be careful about that terminology. But usually the way the culture uses the term is they're talking about this angry attitude. They're talking about these people that, that keep people at arm's length and, and try to make a stink and try to make a, a big deal about being holy in such a way that's condemning to those that are not. Well, well, somewhere in between, we've got to fight to continue to hold that tension between 
being attractive and being winsome and being welcoming and being friendly and also being truthful and holding on to it. And like I said at the very beginning of the sermon, the, the Bible never separates those things. It's humans that separate those. It's humans that say, well, I'm going to be a truth person. And someone else says, well, I'm going to be a beauty and attraction person. You know, I'm going to focus on being nice and people thinking I'm cool, but who cares about the truth? And someone else says, well, I'm going to focus on the truth, but I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be a jerk about it. You know, for some reason, as humans, we separate those things out, but the gospel brings those together in the truth that we're lost, that we've rebelled against God, and we can't save ourselves. And in the truth and beauty that God came after us in Jesus, that Jesus died for us, that he lived the perfect life that we couldn't live to take our place and to to give us freedom. And when we start with that truth, it then transforms us from the inside out. That's where we started with the sermon. That's where we started when Paul gave his instructions to Titus. You've got to start with truth, and then that'll be the ignition, that'll be the spark that drives everything else. Always keep that order correct, and that'll transform our lives. We'll have a beautiful life. Well, as I was... uh, as I was thinking about the ending of this and how, how compelling it can be, I was thinking about how I've struggled with that in my own life. Um, when I was, I guess, a young Christian, 17, 18, um, I started to change what I was looking for in a wife. Um, I started to have different priorities. When I started walking with Christ, truth started becoming more of a priority. Before then, it had really only been beauty, right? Um, I'd only been interested in good-looking girls. I didn't really care how they lived or, or what they believed. God got a hold of my heart, and he he changed my heart, and I began to see the truth and the wonder of Jesus and what he'd done for me. And so then I began to change my list. I don't know if you have a list of what you are, if you're single, what you are looking for in a mate, or if if you're married, what you were looking for in a mate. Um, But but I had this list, and the list began to change. You know, someone that would be be someone that believed in the truth, uh, that would believe in the Bible, that would love the Lord. And that list began to change, and in my immaturity, I started to think, I guess I have to give up on someone good-looking. I've got to go for this truth thing, you know? <laughs> then in that, in that dumb human way that we separate those things out, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to lower my standards and just find some ugly chick that loves Jesus and, <laughs> and go with that. And, and so that, that was really the direction I started to go. <clears throat> and then a really cool thing happened. I met this girl through a youth ministry our senior year. Actually, I'd known her before, but re-met her now as a Christian who was beautiful, most beautiful girl I'd ever seen. And that attracted me to her. That moved me. That compelled me. She, she met the list, right? She loved the Lord. She believed in the truth. But what compelled me, what actually moved me, was she was gorgeous. I thought, wow, I'm getting both. I can't, I can't believe this. I married her a couple of years later, and I've been blessed by, by her beauty and by the way, she brings those two things together. And that's, that's what we should be as a church. We should be truth-tellers. We should believe the right things. But we should also be attractive. We should be beautiful. And we should make life beautiful using whatever God has given us, whatever station he has called you to, wherever he has placed you, whatever kind of mind he's given you, whatever kind of body he's given you, no matter what it is, you can use that to make life beautiful and honor him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for setting us free from walking in lies. I pray that you would continue to transform us with your truth, that we would be able to set up a new culture, and that it would be something that's beautiful, something that would be compelling. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. God bless you guys. You are dismissed.